all religions are not the same. Now this might seem contrary to what has been taught to you in school and what your parents have taught you, what your leaders have said in their speeches. In this episode, I'm going to try and give you an alternate view of things, that all religions are not the same. And uh, no matter which sampraday, community or religion you're from, there's a lot that you learn from this. And uh, I can assure you that if you listen to this episode carefully, by the end of it, you should be able to hold a theological debate with almost anybody. Most of the text that I have used in this episode is from a book called uh, The Defense of Hindu Society by Sri Sitaram Goyal. But before we get to that, I am going to tell you a story. A Soviet diplomat arrived in the capital of a democratic country on a commercial mission on behalf of his government. The mission was to continue for several months, and the hotel in which the diplomat was staying in was rather expensive by Soviet standards. So the next day, the diplomat approached the reception of the hotel and asked the lady in attendance, Where can I find your housing committee? The lady could not understand his question, so she asked him to elaborate. So the diplomat explained, You see, I cannot stay for long in this expensive place. I want to apply to the appropriate authority for allotment of adequate but cheaper accommodation. So the lady picked up the telephone directory, opened it at a particular page and told the diplomat, Sorry, we have no such committee in the city or anywhere else in the country. You have to go to an estate agent who will show you all kinds of accommodation and negotiate for the one you approve of. The leading estate agents are listed on this page. You may phone any one of them for an appointment. The diplomat was visibly annoyed. He shoved aside the telephone directory and shot his next question. And where can I find your food committee? The lady informed him that there was no such committee either. The diplomat was now furious. He shouted, How and where, then, do I buy the food which I will need every day? I must have the necessary permit. The lady assured him patiently that he needed no permit and that he could go into any of the hundreds of stores to buy whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. By now the diplomat was in tantrums. He taunted. I suppose you have no transport committee either. The lady kept her cool and said with a smile, Why, there are all those taxis standing and cruising all over the city. You can hire any of them at any time of the day or night and go wherever you please. The diplomat gave up in utter disgust. There was sadness on his face. He shook his head several times and said to himself, Very bad, very bad indeed. There is no system in this country. It is a chaos all around. I feel lost. Remember the parting words of the Soviet diplomat, I feel lost. Uh, by the end of the episode, you'll know why. Because a follower of closed creeds, like Christianity and Islam, finds himself in a similar situation when faced with the spiritual freedom that is Sanatana Dharma. He discovers very soon that Sanatana Dharma does not fit into any of the mental models to which he is used to and which he seeks in other systems of thought. He's most likely to shake his head in utter disgust and feel lost, like our Soviet diplomat from a closed social system who was stationed in the metropolis of a free society. An encounter between a follower of Christianity or Islam and a follower of Hinduism is, therefore, sure to develop something like this. 
the first point in which the followers of these closed creeds take great pride in is the historicity of the only saviour or the last prophet who was sent by and received the full and final revelation from the one and only true God. The first question which such a faithful will put to a student of Sanatana Dharma is bound to be, who is your only saviour or your last prophet? Where was he born and brought up? Where and when and before which apostles or companions did he teach, preach and reveal? Who is the one prophet of Hinduism? A student of Sanatan Dharma can only reply that the very concept of a historical saviour or prophet is foreign to Sanatana Dharma. We do not concede the monopoly of spiritual truth or moral virtue to any one historical person, however great or highly honoured he might be. Everyone has to be one's own saviour and one's own prophet. One has to discover the spiritual truths for one's own self. If that truth has to have any meaning for oneself or any validity in one's life, a truth discovered by someone else cannot become my truth unless I rediscover it for myself. Scriptures and spiritual teachers can be my aids and guides and may help me in search of my truth. But the truth of which the scriptures speak of or which the teachers expound cannot become a truth for me unless unless it comes alive in my own consciousness and starts transforming my own life. Moreover, the very historicity in which you take pride is for us the hallmark of the ephemeral and the false. We reject a historical religion as Purusheya Prasthana, idiosyncrasies of a particular person, no matter how you hail him. That which was born in history has also died in history. You are showing devotion to what is dead and gone. Next, the followers of closed creeds are very proud of being Ahle Kitab or the people of the book. They are sure that the only true revelation from the one and only true God is contained in their book or Al-Kitab, which was compiled by apostles or the only saviour or the companions of the last prophet. Of course, they were compiled after the saviour or the prophet had passed away and could speak no more. They believe that nothing can be taken out from or added to this book which is supposed to contain the final truth for all times to come. So the second question that such a faithful will ask a follower of Sanatan Dharma is, which is the book in which you believe? Which is your Al-Kitab? A student of Sanatan Dharma is sure to reply that, what do we need a book for? The whole spiritual truth, every Shastra, is secret in the human heart. Anyone, anywhere, at any time, can have access to this spiritual realm provided one seeks for it sincerely and prepares oneself for entering it. Many seers and saints have seen it in as many ways, spoken of it in many languages and by means of many metaphors. The Vedas provide one version of it, the Jainagma another, the Tripitak another, and so on down to the latest Hindu saint such as Sri Ramakrishna or the latest Hindu sage such as Ramana Maharishi. Different sects of Sanatan Dharma have collected the sayings and songs of different sages and saints in as many books which these sects cherish as their shastras. But these shastras are not what you would describe as the book or al-kitab, even by a distant definition. Your creed will get lost for good if your book or al-kitab gets lost. The book or al-kitab cannot be recovered because the person who preached it or to whom it was revealed is dead and gone. But Sanatan Dharma will lose nothing even if all its shastras are lost. All old shastras and many more can be recovered 
from inside the human heart, from the human consciousness, where all of them are ultimately enshrined. By now, the follower of a closed creed is most likely to be flabbergasted by what he has been brainwashed to regard as blasphemy. So the third question which such a faithful will ask a student of Sanatana Dharma is, You have no only saviour, no lost prophet. You have no Al-Kitab. How then do you know who is your one and only true God? How do you distinguish this one and only true God from the many false gods which abound all around you? At this stage, the student of Sanatana Dharma will have to smile and say, According to our spiritual tradition, testified by a long line of spiritual seekers, the way to God-discovery is through self-discovery. As one proceeds on that inner voyage, one sees spiritual truths in many forms. None of these forms is false. It is only one's seeking which can falter and lead to one's fall from the path of spiritual progress by insisting that this or that form alone is true. Sanatana Dharma stands squarely for a human becoming God in the process of self-discovery. Atman becoming Paramatman, Purusha becoming Purushottama. This is the path of world discovery as well. The deeper one dives into oneself, the faster one's world gets divinized. You start seeing God in every human being, in every animal, in every plant, in every stone. One feels free to worship God in any form or in all forms at the same time. One also feels free not to worship God at all and to dwell within oneself in spiritual self-delight. Sanatana Dharma therefore has no use for a God who makes himself known to mankind through the medium of a saviour or a prophet or through the pages of Al-Kitab or the book. Such a God must always remain external to us and external to the world in which we live. If such a God does not permit humanhood to grow into Godhood, nor allows this world to get divinized. He has reserved all divinity for himself and has nothing to spare for his creatures, except an abject servitude to his arbitrary commandments, conveyed through a saviour or a prophet, chosen equally arbitrarily. In an Abrahamic tradition, all the godliness is reserved for the God himself. There is none to be spared for his creatures, his people. It's all for the God and there is no chance of a normal human being attaining Godhood. The follower of a closed creed will now shoot his last arrow with what he believes will be a deadly effect. He is sure to shout, You have failed to win the favour of the only saviour or the last prophet by not living a life according to the final commandments of the one and only true God as revealed to his only son or his last prophet in Al-Kitab or the book. How will the only saviour or the last prophet intercede for you on the day of judgment and save you from God's wrath and eternal hellfire? You cannot say in all seriousness that you are not interested in going to an eternal heaven full of fair maidens, flowing with milk and honey and fanned by ever-fragrant breezes. A student of Sanatan Dharma will keep a school and reply that Sanatana Dharma is not so mean and miserly in deciding human destiny. It gives many lives to every creature. One can start anew from the point where one stopped in one's previous life. And the process does not cease till a creature has attained perfection and achieved godhood. Everyone is a bodhisattva destined to become the Buddha in the course of spiritual seeking. The journey is from darkness and bondage 
to light and freedom and not from the sensual pleasures of this world to the sensual orgies of a high heaven. On the other hand, the only hell we know is neither situated outside ourselves nor at the end of time. The hell is within us, in our greed and gluttony, in our hatred and infatuation, in our self-righteousness and self-seeking, in our dark drives for power and domination, in our self-love and pursuit of pleasure. The only way out of this hell is through an awakening to the divinity within us and through dispelling the darkness of ignorance in which we live our mundane lives. The favor or disfavor of a savior or a prophet can neither catapult us into heaven nor drag us down into hell. A savior or a prophet is absolutely irrelevant to the realm of spiritual progress or retrogression. At this point, the follower of a closed creed is bound to give up in utter disgust. He is bound to exclaim, Very bad. Very bad indeed. There is no system in your bewildered beliefs. It is a free-for-all. What is worse, it is blasphemy against the one and only true God, against the only Savior or the last prophet sent by Him, and against the only true revelation conveyed by Him through a mighty messenger. A student of Sanatan Dharma can ignore these pronouncements and proceed to examine the only true creeds. To start with, uh, he'll not judge these creeds for their inner logic or the lack of it, but instead weigh them on the scales of yogic spirituality. And a dharmic person will very soon find out that these creeds are not born of a spiritual consciousness at all. On the contrary, these are the constructs of the outer mind drawing strength from dark drives of the unconscious. The one and only true God of these creeds is the embodiment of fear and awe of the dark and the unknown. Their only saviour or the last prophet is a father figure in an infantile search for security in a world full of doubts and uncertainties. Their Al-Kitab is a collection of rationalizations mounted upon human passions like self-love, jealousy, vindictiveness, cunning, greed and aggression. Their heaven represents an explosion of the animal hunger for endless sense pleasures unmixed with or followed by pain. Their hell symbolizes a deep-seated hatred for fellow human beings who refuse to bow down before self-appointed messengers of an imaginary god. Hindu society will acquire self-confidence when it recognizes that Sanatana Dharma stands for self-exploration, self-purification and self transcendence, while these creeds stand for self-stupefaction, self-righteousness and self-exaggeration. The horrible histories of these creeds are running commentaries on the character of their doctrines. Those histories are full of crusades and jihads, massacres and genocides, inquisitions and witch-huntings, extinction of the freedom of thought and spiritual aspiration, an imperialist aggression against infidels in which the latter's religions and cultures are destroyed, their properties pillaged, their lands misappropriated, and their men, women, and children slaughtered or enslaved. It is a sin to regard them as religion in any sense of the term, and to extend some of Hav towards their exclusive and intolerant dogmas. Nonetheless, we still must do a comparative analysis to understand how Dharma is separate from Mazhab. The difference between Sanatana Dharma and 
these closed creeds like Christianity and Islam. To begin with, we'll try and understand the psyche behind the Hindu mind. We'll try to understand the basic tenets of the Sanatana Dharma. So please pay attention because when understanding these very complicated concepts, things can get very heavy very quickly. It is an intuition ingrained in the Hindu psyche to inhabit our entire environment with innumerable gods and goddesses. Some of these divinities are installed in temples as icons and worshipped with well-defined rituals. Some others are worshipped as and where they are invoked. Hindu shastras and saints and sages have paid homage to many gods and goddesses in many sublime hymns. The sky, which forms the firmament and permeates the whole universe as space, is a great god. It is the abode of all sounds, and it harbors in its vastness many other gods, such as the sun and the moon and the stars, and goddesses, such as the dawn and the dusk. These celestial gods and goddesses are worshipped in their own right, particularly the sun and the moon and the dawn. The air which fills the hollow between the sky and the earth, which rages as storm and blows as breeze, and which sustains the respiratory system and all that is alive, is also a great god. It is not visible to the eye, but it manifests itself by its power to touch and turn. The earth, which bears all the burdens, which bestows boundless bounties from beneath and above its surface, and which is the symbol of forgiveness and forbearance, is also a great goddess. The mountains which soar up till they become snow-capped are the abodes of gods and goddesses. So are the forests, which are full of flowers and fruits and varied wealth. Some creepers and plants and trees are veritable gods and goddesses, hearkening us to pray our homage to them. The water which is clustered in the clouds, which pours down as rain, which flows in rivers and springs, which gets stored up in tanks and lakes and seas and oceans, which showers itself as snow and gets settled as ice on mountaintops, is also a great god. It washes all dirt and removes all thirst. It nourishes our fields, our crops and our forests. It becomes the sap in all vegetables and fruits and circulates as blood in all animals and humans. Lakes like the Mansarovar are specially sacred because gods and goddesses play their games in and around them. Rivers like the Ganga and the Godavari are themselves goddesses. The fire which blazes in the sun, which heats up every hearth and which is stored as energy in all fuels, is also a great god. It manifests itself not only as heat, but also as light which shines in the stars, which reveals itself in a riot of colours, which endows everything with form and which lends vision to every eye. It maintains every metabolism as vital heat, without which nothing can remain alive. The fire god is worshipped daily in the family hearth, is regarded as the ambassador of gods in every sacrifice, and is a witness to the sanctity of all sacraments. The birds, the fishes and the animals are the venerable vehicles of gods and goddesses and are revered as much as their writers. The Garuda is the vehicle of Vishnu, the bull that of Shiva, the lion is the vehicle of Durga, the mouse that of Ganpati, the swan that of Saraswati and the owl is that of Lakshmi. The horse is yoked in the chariot of Indra as well as that of the sun. The snake is Nag Devta and the cow is sacred above all, a goddess par excellence. 
near a home, the mother is a goddess and the father is a god, to be obeyed while they are in the prime and served when they grow old. They are to be remembered with reverence and their protection is to be sought after they pass away and become pitris. The wife who looks after the family welfare, who brings up the children and who participates in all sacraments, is a goddess. The guru, who is the repository of wisdom and learning, is also a god, to be propitiated with gifts as profuse as one can afford. The guest who comes to our home by chance is a god, deserving of our warmest hospitality. The king who protects us from evildoers and presides over the welfare of his praja is also a god. And so on, the roster is endless. Every family has a kul devta. Every community has a jati devta. Every village has a gram devta. Every city, a nagar devta. And every region, a janpad devta. The Bharat Mata who came to be worshipped as Rashtra Devta in more recent times and who inspired the national song Vande Mataram is a projection of the same Hindu psyche which sees a god or a goddess in everything, everywhere. The Hindu psyche has always harboured a deep sense of sanctity towards all elements and forces of Mother Nature in all their forms and transforms. It worships these elements and forces not only outside the human body but also within it. This Hindu psyche intimates that all that is without is also within. All that is within must also be without. Yathapinde Tathabrahmatne It therefore invests everything outside with life, with consciousness, with thought and feeling, and also with will. The inanimate thus becomes animate. The unconscious becomes conscious. The thoughtless becomes thoughtful. The insensitive becomes sensitive. And the inert becomes active. This power of the Hindu psyche persists till long after a Hindu gets converted to Christianity or to Islam and, of course, invites frowns and fears lectures from the missionary and the mullah. This power of the Hindu psyche is illustrated by the story of a Hindu lady in Kerala who got converted to Christianity for some reason. The missionary who had converted her paid a visit to her house one day and found her worshipping the old Hindu gods and goddesses of the family. The missionary was red in the face and he rebuked her in the name of the only true god. The lady smiled and said, So what? My becoming a Christian does not mean that I have renounced my dharma. It will not do for the Hindu society to feel shy of this pervasive Hindu psyche, which is as old as the oldest Hindu shastra, the Vedas and perhaps even much older. It will not do for Hindu society to disown this deep-seated Hindu psyche, which sustains practically the whole of Hindu religion and culture. In fact, Hindu society has to go back to the source of this psyche, reawaken to the spiritual center which gave birth to this psyche and reaffirm an abiding faith in its reaches and ramifications. This is the default state of you as a Hindu. There is no point denying it. There is no point feeling shy of it. Rather, we should all own it. Western sociology is trying to explain this psyche as a hangover from a primitive past when human reason was not so developed and could not discriminate between fact and fancy. The Western science of comparative religion, which is just another name for Christian theology, is trying to trash the psyche as primitive, a crude form of religious awakening. A more serious attack on this Hindu psyche is mounted by the Christian missionary. He pronounces that Hindu psyche has been heavily polluted by pantheism, which sees a god or goddess in every bug that bites and every cockroach that crawls. He believes that Hindus can be cured of this perverse psyche 
only by being baptized in the Christian church and by accepting Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior. Similarly, the Muslim Mullah frowns on this Hindu psyche as shirk, that is, a mixing up of the divine with the mundane. He sees no future for Hindus, either here or in the thereafter, unless they accept Allah as the only true God and Muhammad as the last prophet of Allah. And the missionary and the mullah are not mere preachers of some distinct doctrines. They are also crusaders and mujahids who believe that Hindus should either be converted to the true faith or killed and be consigned to the eternal hellfire. Destruction and defilement of the images of Hindu gods and goddesses, demolition of Hindu temples and monasteries, desecration of Hindu places of pilgrimage and burning of Hindu shastras are the fundamental tenets of their faiths. What is this other psyche which is suffused with such smug self-righteousness and which finds such satanic satisfaction in hurting the deepest sentiments of people belonging to another faith? Hindu society will have to understand this other psyche if it wants to save itself from the inroads of Christianity and Islam, both of which are eating into its vitals with the aid of international allies and resources. Christianity and Islam differ on many points of small detail, but they share a common view of what they invoke as the creator and the controller of the cosmos. The term monotheism casts such a magic spell on certain minds that they stop at its literal meaning, the concept of one god as opposed to many gods. In the theology of monotheism, God is extra-cosmic. He created the cosmos out of nothing in order to demonstrate his almightiness, but he kept himself outside and above the cosmos. There is nothing in God's creation which can share in God's divinity. The elements and the forces of nature are devoid of any divinity whatsoever. The sky is just empty space, and the sun and the moon and the stars are only bright spots in the sky. Matter is absolutely material, and animals and birds are brutes, unless they are domesticated, in which case they show some improvement. Trees are just timber, and the flowers embody no more than colour and fragrance. Air and water and fire and earth are what they are and point to nothing beyond. It is only man who is placed on a higher pedestal, because the Almighty God blew his own breath into the handful of dust which he used in order to manufacture Adam, the male ancestor of the human race. Women cannot share man's status because Eve, the female ancestor of the human race, was carved out of Adam's rib without the benefit of God's breath being blown into it. Man is thus the best of God's creation, the Ashraf al-Makhlukat. But it is an unpardonable folly and a cardinal sin for man to fancy that he shares even an iota of God's divinity. The only privilege which man enjoys is God's best creation is to lord over the lower creation which God has made for man's use and benefit. Man can exploit the material resources of the earth in whatever way he pleases. Man can eat every bird and fish and animal, for God has created them specifically for man's consumption. And man can marry and divorce and keep as his concubines any number of women at any stage of his life. The monogamy we find in Christianity is not prescribed by the Christian scripture. It was an institution which is borrowed from the pagan Romans. As man is likely to be carried away by the freedom of will which has been bestowed upon him and forget his creator, God has been sending prophets 
from time to time to restrain him from worship of false gods and philosophical speculation and to turn his thoughts towards a higher purpose, obedience to God's will as revealed through the prophets. The complete code of such do's and don'ts have been conveyed by God in his final revelation, the New Testament according to Christianity and the Quran according to Islam, through his only son who is Jesus for Christianity and the last prophet who is Muhammad for Islam. The supreme purpose of man's life is to worship the extra-cosmic God with whom man cannot communicate directly, lead a life of piety according to rules laid down in the final revelation which man cannot question, and seek the intercession of the only son or the last prophet whose claims man cannot scrutinize in terms of his natural reason or normal moral sense. If man can say goodbye to his critical thinking and conscience, which are the seats of Satan by the way, he can hope for an eternal heaven at the end of the only life God has granted to him. But if man wavers or questions or criticizes or tries to understand or judges these mysteries by using his own mind or moral sense, he becomes bound for an eternal hell from which there is no escape and where the torment turns worse and worse with every ticking moment. Islam assigns the same role to women in heaven as she is expected to play on this earth to serve man in obedience and to provide sexual pleasures to her male master. The only concession extended to women after they enter heaven is to be spared the pains of maternity and old age. She becomes a huri endowed with eternal youth and unfading beauty. In Christianity, the woman is essentially a temptress who leads a man to hell. Her role in the thereafter has not been clearly defined. An added duty of all the true believers is to band together in a church or an ummah for propagating the only true religion and to prop up the only son or the last prophet by all means including force and fraud. The fraternity thus formed is expected to invite all unbelievers to get converted to the only true creed and to declare a crusade or jihad against all those who refuse to be persuaded peacefully for saving themselves from eternal perdition and for securing an eternal heaven. The church is expected to secure the aid of its secular arm and the ummah is expected to convert itself into a theocratic state in order to carry forward this struggle. There is no limit to what these holy wars can legitimately do to the unbelievers except the limit imposed by power equations at any time. The least that the wars should do at the first available opportunity is to destroy the false gods of the unbelievers and the unholy temples where those gods are worshipped. The holy warriors are under no obligation at all to prove that they are better human beings as compared to those they are expected to convert or kill or enslave or subjugate. Their only qualification is that they believe in the only son or the last prophet and follow the only true religion. One may spend a lifetime searching the theology of monotheism for a factual or rational proof of what it proclaims so pompously. But the search will be in vain. Is there a proof that a being called Almighty God exists and controls the cosmos? The answer is that the only Son or the last prophet has said so. And who has sent this Son or appointed this prophet to tell us about God and His doings? The answer is that it is God who has proclaimed the Son or the prophet. What is the proof that what the Son or the prophet pronounces as a divine revelation comes from God. The answer is that the revelation says so. 
It is an endless exercise with no reference to human experience or human reason at any point. In the last analysis, God is really a surplus in this system of thought. Because the time comes when God imparts his final revelation to the only son or to the last prophet and retires to a well-deserved rest after entrusting the fate of this whole world as well as all of his creatures to the keeping of the son or the prophet. But in due course, the son or the prophet also is dead and gone after bequeathing his monopoly over truth and virtue to the church or to the ummah. The church or the ummah in dawn is dominated by a single man or a clique that can control and use a mighty military machine which has been built in the meanwhile. In the final round, it all ends up as imperialist aggression against other people in which a veneer of religious verbiage is retained in order to sustain the self-righteousness of the aggressor. The idols of the conquered people are destroyed and their temples are pillaged not because their gods have been found to be false, but because an imperialist always aims at destroying the self-respect of the people upon whom he wants to secure a stranglehold. It is in the nature of imperialism to indulge in cultural genocide on the slightest pretext or at the first favorable opportunity. The plight of the Allah of Islam is portrayed by Muhammad Iqbal, also known as Allah Iqbal. In his poem Shikwa, he says, तुझको मालूम है लेता था कोई नाम तेरा कुत बाजू मुस्लिम ने किया काम तेरा इट मीन्स डू यू नो ऑफ एनी वन हु बॉडर्ड अबाउट यू बिफोर वी केम फॉरवर्ड इट वॉज द मसल पावर ऑफ द मुस्लिम विच केम टू योर रेस्क्यू दिस इज वॉट मोहम्मद इकबाल इज टेलिंग अल्लाह इन इज पोएम द गॉड ऑफ द बाइबल इज इन नो बेटर पोजिशन ही हैज बिन हेल्ड अलॉफ्ट ऑल अलॉन्ग बाई क्रिश्चन गन्स और क्रिश्चन बैग्स ऑफ मनी हिस्ट्री इज विटनेस दैट क्रिश्चैनिटी एज वेल एज इस्लाम have always expanded by the power of the sword and seldom by power of any truth contained in their scriptures in the words of iqbal again par tere naam pe talwar uthai kisne kaat kar rakh diya kufar ke lashkar kisne he is asking allah or rather telling allah who drew their swords in defense of your name and your fame who was it that slaughtered the armies of the infidels for your sake it is obvious that the allah of islam had to be thrust down people's throats at the point of the sword otherwise he was a non-existent entity who no one was prepared to affirm and the same can be said of the jehovah of christianity it is small wonder therefore that this politics of power masquerading as religion cannot understand the language of spirituality which speaks in terms of a divinity in everything everywhere and which enables human beings to dwell constantly in the company of gods and goddesses This politics is too busy amassing wealth and power and pleasures of a material world to care for things which belong to the realm of spirit. Iqbal had lamented and shown his frustration, pained by the poverty of Muslims and the decay of the power of Islam. He had written, "Kahar to ye hai ki kafir ko mile khur o kusur aur bechare Muslimaan ko fakt vada e khur." He is saying that the terrible tragedy is that the infidels live in palaces and make love to. Huris in this life, while the poor Muslim has to remain content only with the promise of Huris hereafter. This is the highest aspiration to which this venerable Allama of Islam could ever attain. It speaks volumes about Islam as a religion. Christianity too aspires towards no goal higher than this. Only its spokesmen are not so crude or honest in putting forward its case. Hindu society 
has not only to recover the source of its own psyche, which speaks in the language of gods and goddesses, it has also to realize that the psyche of Christianity and Islam hides vulgar materialism and imperialist ambition under a welter of high-sounding verbiage. Hindu society will never be able to win the debate with thoughtless ideologies unless it rediscovers its own spiritual center. So this was the episode number four of the Indology podcast. I hope you liked it. And once again, please follow me on all these social media platforms. The name is the same, Indologia, I-N-D-O-L-O-G-I-A. And as I said in the beginning, this was a bit of a heavy topic, a very intense topic. But I assure you, if you listen to this podcast a couple of times, you will be able to debate uh, anybody from any religion. When it comes to a theological debate, uh, not many people are going to be able to beat you. So uh, please give it a second listen if you think that you require that. And till the next time I see you, Jai Hind and Vande Matram.